Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. On today's episode, I'm joined by returning guest and friend, Joe Jakowski. And as always, we go very deep on all of the psychological and philosophical ideas Joe has been playing around with, and it's a long one. It's almost two hours long, so buckle up. And as always, check the show notes if there's anything we mentioned. The first thing I do want to mention is we had a psychologist mentioned. His name is John Verveke, and we mumbled over the words, and you couldn't hear it. So I wanted to make sure I said it here, and there will be a link to his work for those interested. And other than that, we cover the gamut of different things here. We talk about information overload, the fragmentation of what it feels like our world is going through right now, and how consciousness and identity all play together into how we form society and where it may be heading and what we can possibly do to steer the ship in the right direction. And I'm leaving it vague so I don't spoil anything here for you, but that is all I'm going to leave it at for right now. And I hope you all enjoy this conversation as always. And thank you for listening. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Joe Joukowsky. I think where we hit the stride was talking about like creative generation. Like where are the people, like where's the cutting edge on who's like just daring to push the envelope? And there are some places where it's obvious, like corporations like Blue Origin and SpaceX are pushing the limits there. To, to get us back to space where NASA and the world's governments with space programs have dropped the ball. And then you have even other places like um, even uh, Neuralink for all of the neuroscience stuff that yeah. they're trying to do. But where is it in the creative world? Where's the, where are the other places, not just high tech? <clears throat> and most of us, it, it seems like a common trend within like the film genre areas like Hollywood. Everyone feels like it's where's the creativity because everything's gone corporate, right? Like, yeah. Disney's huge. Yeah, Disney just owns everything. Right. Sucks the life out of it, turns the soul into cash, and then runs away. And then you have, I, I think the big win, though, like you have big film, and that's one thing, but I think the win, they've gone the opposite direction, which is Netflix and streaming media, like streaming stuff. Instead of going like the serialized content of like 25 episodes, and every other episode's a filler episode a season. Instead, Netflix has gone the opposite. It's no longer incentivizing for ad space. Now you have 10 amazing hour-long episodes. Yeah. Really thought out, super high budgets, though. So that's the problem. Because now all of a sudden your barrier entry is... Super high. You can imagine <laughs> that the risks that Netflix and them are going to be willing to take here pretty soon, if not already, are significantly lower because of the cost. Because you have to basically have a credential slash pedigree with a really good stellar idea that has a market. Because the other thing you notice now is that existing ip is what's being turned into shows more often than not there's still originals around there but now you're seeing old school ideas being readapted from their original media yeah it's also it's also played out in the reboots part of the nostalgia is a result of a loss of meaning in the culture you find that in the meaning literature people will return will be will act or, or be attracted to nostalgic things or, or be drawn to nostalgia because they're looking into their past for those things that made their lives feel meaningful. Right. 
right? What had worked before doing that? And that what we're seeing in the culture in the nostalgia world is actually a something like attempt by the zeitgeist to find what it was that it found meaningful in its, in its yeah. history. Yeah, that with Disney specifically, with all the live action remakes of a lot of their their like classic films, like Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, and it makes money because the po- I would say because the population wants to to do to, wants to both search for that thing in their past, right from the era that those original animated things came out from. They made their fi- lives from meaningful. Yep, but also. I think that there's a a retreat from the future into the past and a desire to return to that sort of mm. infantile time where they could just watch Disney animated films and not care about the world. So there's a good the good element of the nostalgia is that they're looking for something that made their lives meaningful that they could grasp and bring into the future. But the bad side is not actually a search for something meaningful. It's a search for unconsciousness. It's to be less conscious of reality. Do you think part of that could be driven by the rate of change? I think it is. I think that... Uh, or mostly driven, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I think that generally uh, the rule of thumb for uh, for human beings in our meaning-making frameworks is that if the rate of incoming information, novel information, so this is information that's incongruent with your frame, so it doesn't fit in the frame, it's new enough, It's it violates your expectations, or at least uh, you didn't see it coming, it doesn't have to necessarily... It would surprise you or may not necessarily just undermine your beliefs, but incongruent enough that you didn't expect it, that if that rate of information exceeds your processing rate, then you slowly become overwhelmed. And in, it can go, it can be, it can pile up and compound and get worse. Well, the paradox of choice, hmm. basically, where it's like you just, too many inputs, and then the system shorts out, and you just look at the last thing you could make sense of, and then you just glom onto that. Yeah. And so I'm referencing it because our generation is at the major milestone of around 30. So we're basically out of adolescence or young adulthood and should have our lives together. And yet the rate of change has done nothing but get faster for most yeah. of us. And I think it's it, the rate of change could perhaps could have been handled if we had a proper framework that we could have used to incorporate or to make right. sense of it. Because if, right, there's two functions here. There's the rate of novel information and there's the rate of processing. And the rate of... Pr- processing is dependent on your is dependent on your frame right, right. the way in which the stable tra- ground behind it <laughs> but if you collapsed that frame right, if you don't have a sophisticated framework for looking at the world then everything is incongruent with your frame because it's so small that any variation that that it's a tiny little dot on a huge sea right right you need a, you have proper a tiny ship, raft <laughs> right you need a proper ship and you the west has dismantled its ship and now you have a board that you are floating on it is very easy to drown now and so that's one issue that we have is that we've dismantled our ship and so that's the loss of meaning the meaning crisis and the existential vacuum and all these other terms that people have talked about from Viktor Frankl to Nietzsche to Jordan Peterson I feel like yeah he talks he has a whole series about the meaning crisis on YouTube that you could watch I'll put a link recommend and um it's very complicated but interesting he's a very creative talking to him was like trying to hold on to uh, like the golden finch and <laughs> In, in Harry Potter. It's just, amazing. movie so damn fast. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. It, it reminds me of, I, I watched, when you mentioned you talked to him, I watched one of his videos on his websites. He talked about zombies mm-hmm. and like why zombies were super popular. The video was like eight years old. So it was like at the peak he of- a book about it. Oh, really? That's cool. But the video was only like a couple of minutes long, but I only listened to a couple of minutes rather. I just thought it was a fascinating idea to, to think about the idea of the zombie in like an abstracted way. 
because we're so used to just taking the surface level interpretation of a zombie. Yeah. But then when he actually elaborated further, they say that it was like he called it's the thing that we're all most afraid of, or like this the subconsciousness of our culture of we're all mindless drones, and the thing that they're after is brains, right? Like this deeper thing to be able to anchor our consciousness in, and like it's they're also they're pack oriented, but they're not part of a community too. They're this weird mindless moving thing that's in search for this sort of collective intelligence that we hope that exactly yeah since a community and i was like holy shit like i never thought about that all of a sudden you have cultural motif is what you could call a zombie and they've been around for a long time but why all of a sudden in the early 2000s do they create so much mind share with so many big hits from i am legend to the walking dead to even like irobot or stuff like that because that's like a technology technological version of a zombie and it's like you, when you stop and think about it, it's, oh, wait, there's something going on here. And then you have all of these people, or you go a little bit further, classic media in which you could all assume, like, this is from a Western U.S. perspective, but you would assume that a national media would basically, if you were from the West Coast or the East Coast or the Midwest, all of you had listened to the same three people, maybe. Or maybe one of those was shifted one way or the other, but... In general, you had a very concise viewpoint of the narrative of your culture. The American viewpoint was very obvious on to what the... Is that you had a... Your collective frame of the world was... You were... The, the influx of information problem. So we've talked about the, the death of God results in it. This sort of Nietzschean idea, the death of God results in a, the dismantling of the ship that the culture uses to navigate the high seas. Yeah. Um, until you have nothing but a board. And you can hardly handle the, the, the swells of grand water that are nearly overtaking you. Even the smallest waves uh, to a board as opposed to a ship seem to be a catastrophe. Yeah. Um, but in the small community of just a handful of people, you don't actually, you can get around with a little rowboat here yeah. in a pond, right? And the, the amount of novel information that's incoming is minimal. Right. The scope of it is very much manageable for a smaller group of people, but... It's almost like the internet now thrusts upon the individual, like a nation's worth or a state's worth of information, right? Yeah. Like, now all of a sudden, the individual has to contend with multiple layers of their cultural collective. The idea of bullshitting, where you sit down and you just talk shit and nobody really takes yeah, like, anybody's like, views. Like the water cooler moments or whatever you want, or happy hour, and I guess. You even talk politics or sports. And you're arguing, but you're not really arguing. Yeah. And the idea is just to bullshit. You're right. just bullshitting. And it doesn't matter if you're super wrong. It doesn't really matter the strength of your argument because you're not really trying to make a point what sticks and what doesn't stick and what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. But now because of social media, any if you try to write a bullshitting paragraph on Facebook, you're really just going, I don't really believe this. I'm just putting this out there. And seeing how it goes, maybe right. it'll be an interesting conversation. Maybe I'll learn something. That's no longer how it's viewed. It's viewed as a statement, like as if you are a politician True. making a political statement upon which you're going to found new policy. And that this is the lover of seriousness. Everybody wanted a, a, pat, a platform, so we democratized it. Now everybody has a platform. And it's treated like a platform where your bullshitting is seen as a statement from a podium and so you hmm. make these statements just to make sense out of the world for yourself and instead you're met with 
the kind of criticism and attacks and outrage and 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 even fact checking yeah that a politician would be scrutinized and that's ridiculous it's it's a misapplication it's a misunderstanding of what it is that people are trying to do and it's it is removing the that kind of easygoing sense making mechanism from right. the culture it, it strikes me as something that is the average person is just not going to be able to articulate these things as a trained orator, like a politician or right. a scientist. Well, some guys can be like, well, I heard on the radio, bro, that something such and such. What, and you how know. many people, how many scientists can tell you where they, what the name of that study was and what year it came from, right? Who, how many people can cite this kind of information? There's a reason that's actually considered a fallacy an argument is that if, if they can in debate, state it, you're not actually supposed to be like, where'd you hear that from? Because <laughs> it's considered bad form because nobody knows where. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, man, I've got it on my computer somewhere. I know it's true. I just got to pull, I can pull it up for you later. We're going to waste all of our time. Especially if you assume both of you are talking from the same level. If you're both in a debate like that, both of you are reading the cutting edge all the time. So to say, did you cite your source? Right. And it's I like douchey. <laughs> 15 things. If, if I'm reading three articles a day. Maybe I'm reading, I wake up in the morning, I go through the news, read a couple headlines, see which one takes a couple minutes to read. I'm like, oh, that's pretty interesting. And I move on in the day and I do some work and then I listen to a podcast with a reputable scientist. And then later I read a, a scientific paper. And now I remember some facts that I read during the week and I tell you, I'm like, oh yeah, this guy said blah, 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 blah. Or I don't even I just say, oh, this happened. Okay, this is true. And then you go, yeah, where did you hear from? I go, one of the 40 different places that I was listening with the, and, and the problem is that I can do the same to you because you were doing the same thing. And I could go, where'd you hear that from? It's well, where did you hear that? And right. you never get there. It's just an infinite regress into, I don't know. I don't know. Shit. Conversation. <laughs> I think you could do the same thing. If someone says a good point, all you have to do to rebut against it is if you listen to a podcast or something or read an article, where do they get their information from? Oh, and so then you destroy the whole reason to have an, a decent conversation. And you'll see this in politics. It's a right wing leaning person is sitting there and you bring up a point to say that actually does. It's OK, if that's the, well, the case, what do you say about this factoid? And they say, where would you get that information from? And what they're looking for is, oh, that's left wing media. So right. don't, I don't have to take that seriously. Well, it's tr tribalism. In your right, first the theme applies in the other direction. <laughs> oh, you got that from Fox News. Therefore, it's wrong. The fact that it came from Fox News doesn't mean it's inherently wrong. It means that you're not going to take it seriously. But it's the same. You have to debate the issue on the argument on its merits. Is Does the argument stand or does it not stand? Because if I say that car is blue, and the devil says that car is blue. The car is not blue just because <laughs> the devil said it. So you don't have to like the source for it to be true. Right. So you can't just dismiss these things outright. It's mm -hmm. certainly obnoxious and you can't. And one of the problems is there are so many platforms that nobody knows which nobody has time to go over everything right. everybody has written I mean, or everybody has said or which platforms are good or bad. And to go through all these debates and stuff. They just go, fuck it. I'm going to rely on the one that seems just intuitively the, the the one that makes the most sense to me. And the one that intuitively makes the most sense to them is the one that aligns with their temperament, <laughs> right? Their personality from the outset. And all it does is create a compounding effect where they only, they get caught in the spiral where they only ever confirm their beliefs. Yeah. I think 
So if we, we could talk about the negatives here all day, but I think one of the things that we, it's like, it's hard to train, right, in general for these things. We know that people have temperaments and they have leanings one way or the other. It doesn't matter what leaning you have, you're going to have them one way or the other. So I think the best way to confront this though is it's a cheeky saying, but I really enjoy it, but it's having strong convictions loosely held. And it's rooted in a scientific understanding that you can believe something like a certain diet, like eating vegan or whatever. But if new data becomes available, be willing to just look at it. Doesn't mean you have, it doesn't mean it makes a value statement on what you believe or what's best for your life, because a lot of times what the science says is very broad in general. So it might not map one to one to your life. So it's in everyone's best interest just to be receptive and be champions for the things they, they believe in that work for them because we, everyone needs that, but be willing to let someone from the other side, just speak their point. It's like that old saying from freedom of speech is I may not agree with what you say, but I'll fight for you to say it. Like, where did that go? <laughs> I think that I'm reading Icarus fallen by Chantal Del Sol, a French philosopher right now that I think it is such a good book. It mm -hmm. is, I can hardly overstate how lucid it is. It's so clear. It's That's so cool. Remarkable, a piece of a philosophy. Uh, about our modern time and you read it and you go, oh God, that's, that's like, yeah, <laughs> that is. And one of the issues is that since we lost our belief system, we, Chantal Dussault argues that, that we're in this place that Icarus would have been had he survived his fall. Hmm. And that it's, you aim for these great heights, utopian heights and ideology, these religious heights, and they all led you to these terrible outcomes. It's like you, they burned your wax wings and fell, you did. And you wonder after the flight is, has ended what the point of it was. Can you trust flying at all? Is it, can I trust what I believe? Because mm. I was so certain that we could get there, right? And so there's a disillusionment with our, all the ideologies of our past, all of the religious systems of our past. And in fact, mm. with any truth system and the idea that you could hold a certainty is met with a level of skepticism now. That it's not just that it's convictions loosely held, it's that even to to believe is to be met with skepticism. To, mm. to think that truth is attainable should be met with skepticism because what our history has told us is that truth leads to, or at least the belief that you hold the truth leads to atrocity. Mm. Right? The certainty of the Nazis made a real problem. The certainty of the Marxists created real problems, right? The certainty of the religious inquisitions created real problems. And so now we're averse to certainty altogether, and, and which means that you can't hold, have any convictions. Yeah, so if you have any convictions, you're, you're like on the path to doom, damnation. Right, on the path to <laughs> genocide is the idea. And that this is the place of God. So nobody wants to hold on to any value whatsoever. But isn't that pessimistic as fuck? Oh, it's nihilistic. And in fact, it ends up being inevitably nihilistic because if you don't hold convictions, what has any meaning? That's what I'm saying. If you're not willing to do anything because anything could lead to, if you don't take anything to be true, then you can't map out a trajectory on where you should go, which if, and because moving towards or being on a trajectory towards an aim is what produces a sense of meaning. You, by annihilating truth, have annihilated any chance of meaning. And so now you're inherently nihilistic. You, you can't escape that problem. The moment that you, the moment that you get rid of a belief system or a belief in beliefs systems, you can't have meaning. That's and so insane. <laughs> you're just phenomenologically, even if there's some kind of 
meaning out there in the universe waiting for you that exists. You can't feel any sense of meaning because you've demolished the possibilities under which you could feel it. Yeah. It just seems so crazy to me because like, I feel like if you really, like whoever this person hypothetically is that has, who can't, if you try to pin them down and say, what do you believe in? And they won't ever say something. They'll just dance around it. I can't say that they wouldn't say, if you ask them the easiest possible thing is, could you, do you hope tomorrow is better than yesterday, right? At the very least, do you think tomorrow might be sunny instead of rainy or cloudy? Yeah. And that fundamentally typically means it's a better day than it was before. You've immediately established <laughs> a, a good and bad value. Exactly. At the very least, then, now all of a sudden you've destroyed that philosophical premise. Oh, immediately. Because we, we it's so funny because we're so skeptical of certainties and we're so desperate for them. And so <laughs> and maybe that's what you'd expect is that in a world where there seems to be no certainties or no means of, of acquiring certainties that the culture provides for you. And in fact, uh, it discourages any attempt at certainty um, that what you would be is more desperate for certainty. Hmm. And so that uh, we become these these manic fact robots scratching around desperately panting They're like gold miners for something <laughs> God, that I can hold on to. And this sort of desperation for certainty makes fools of many of, of almost of all of us. Should we fall into it? Because then you can any stupid thing that seems to pass the bill uh, you'll take for the truth. Yeah. Right. You'll fall into an ideology and don't tie flat. I forget who it was that said it, but it was some, the, it might've been like C.S. Lewis or, or G.K. Chesterton or something. Like this. If you don't believe in God, you'll, be, like, you'll believe in damn near anything. <laughs> and it's, that's about right. Is that when it's, a, and maybe not literally, but figuratively. It's like an anger point. Right. The moment that you, the moment that you, you uh, annihilate a higher, more robust, broader, metaphorical, beautiful, sophisticated belief system, you immediately become swamped and become panicked and swim desperately for the closest oar to hang on to, right? Yeah. Any little piece of land or raft or whatever that you can grasp becomes your lifesaver here. And it may be that in the long term, that's very bad and it may even be unnecessary. Yeah. It seems crazy to me because it's like, we haven't, we, most of us are blissfully unaware and thankfully blissfully unaware how complex human society is. And, but yet right now we have so much turmoil in almost every facet of the human experience from individual communities based on COVID regulations or measures because we've fragmented our communities. And then we also have massive distrust of our largest organizations that our sense-making or at least provide guidance for how to behave in society. And then on top of that, we have massive upheavals within the internet infrastructure with all this decentralization going on or bubbling up between NFTs and crypto. And it's, there's almost, it's everything's become quicksand. And then everyone is now looking around and all that's left is islands, ide islands being ideologies for the different surface level <laughs> parties that just make seem to make the most sense to and again because of the influx of information and the just the lack of time that any person has to sift through all of these right. things they're just going to default to the things that makes the most sense which is temperamental which means that they're going to get in this spiral so so all the islands that they see are just islands that confirm the beliefs that they already hold or that they are predisposed to, to hold. Or you might be, in some sense, predisposed by your friend group or whatever. Mindset. And 
the conspiracy world is the one you fall into because it just happens to be the puzzle piece that fits. Into yeah. Particular and if people world. want to see like, a really good example of like how this conspiracy stuff plays out, it's a HBO documentary Q. Oh, Q into the void. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so it's HBO, it's six parts or something. It's fantastic and terrifying at the same time. Yeah, they they go, they miss a couple things. They misunderstand Gamergate mm. almost not entirely, but a lot. They really misunderstand Gamergate, but it's okay because the sliver that they're that they're talking about is largely related to QAnon and this kind of right. They used it through that lens, not right. The so whole perhaps insofar as the part of Gamergate that was associated with um, this conspiratorial crazy thinking. Their explanation may be valid, but other right. than that, the I thought that the the documentary was fascinating. I thought, oh yeah, it, it showed how again how uh, or not necessarily again, but at least that when you annihilate the right the belief system, you just generate a stupid one. It, it's that what ends up happening is that religion is not is not the drink. It's not the Kool Aid. Religion is the glass. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's a container. You can, you can dump <laughs> out the glass. But it's going to slowly be refilled with something else, okay? And that something else is going to look religious. And you go, oh, damn it, we need to get rid of religion again. Let's dump out the glass. It's going to be refilled in two seconds anyway. And you're watching in QAnon a new religion filled the – or uh, seemingly a new religion emerge. But it's just, again, it's the filling of the glass. I know. It's, cr it's crazy they called them the QTubers, like yeah. this subsection of YouTube that were just <laughs> – to, to finish the thought, it's that at the end, it, religion is the glass, not the drink. Not the liquid. It's which means that at the end of the day, you just get to pick what flavor of Kool Aid you want to drink. And mm. you want the best possible flavor you can make because the hot pepper uh, steaming uh, <laughs> pile of shit flavor is not the one that we want. That's not the, that's nope. not the flavor that we want. And nope. We get to pick a flavor if we want to. And hopefully it's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Now, at a certain point, this metaphor breaks down because the, it turns out that as you fill the glass, elaborates itself. Yeah. The the glass morphs itself into do different things. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, but that's what I thought was interesting about yeah. that, that world is that, he, oh, yeah, okay, I see. There's this whole new religion being generated, largely on the right, which is it's interesting to me that the right, is the conspiratorial ones? I'm not really sure why that is. I don't know. It's an but, interesting one because they were they're typically the is usually attributed to Christian values. I don't know if it's just that that rural values. The I guess Christian values allowed like the fundamentalist evangelical values were a practice session for this sort of mystical thinking, and when that gets cleared out, it just takes on a conspiratorial frame and right. or, or paint instead. Or like structure was generated over. Yes, or it's just people drop their more fundamentalist views. It just they it leaves a void that's right. more easily and just immediately gets attributed with another kind of Kool Aid. Right. It just boop, there it is. And I don't know if it's that in practice that they were pra they were constructing the glass with the tools of evangelical Christianity for years, and suddenly they drop out the glass and right. here it is. I, I don't know. It's interesting. See, I, I can't believe the, the conspiracy. Like I've had, I'm not afraid to go into the conspiracy stuff and just poke around. It's more of like I'm a tourist and I don't believe yeah. it. Right. But Wow, this is crazy. What's underneath here? <laughs> but whoops, wrong one. <laughs> but I, I guess in early when I was younger, it was more of like drop religion wholeheartedly and then turn to science, which could some could say is turned into a religion in some respects. Yeah, I would say it becomes manic. 
is that it, it, what there two things happen is that one immediately if you think that you can have a view from nowhere and be an objective observer you're an idiot <laughs> your entire system of thought is an exacted elaborated uh, form of taking a perspective right we took a perspective because we, we are a perspective the world and then we were able to abstract out from the actual physical procedural experience where you had to interact with the world yeah. a means of episodically of representing the world. And so you could have abstract imaginative thoughts. You could create a narrative in your head and view the dream or you could daydream about something that could happen. Huh. But that's predicated on the underlying reality. And then you can abstract it even more in using your neural elaborated evolved framework. And have just pure symbols that are mathematical or linguistic. But all of this, when you follow it down to its base, comes from a perspective right. in the world. You need an even the smallest possible right. unit is an you individual. You do not have the capability, period, of taking a perspective from nowhere, of having an objective view, period. You'd have to be God or godlike, whatever and that what would be. what it is that God would be seeing doesn't even make sense. Because God would, if God is unlimited, right? Then he doesn't have a perspective. He's all of them all at once. It's all perspectives, <laughs> but all time. Right? It's all things, and it doesn't get pewed to arms viewpoint. All places from all. Yeah, the idea of time doesn't even exist. <laughs> Nothing exists. Yeah, it, no thing exists hmm. because it is the beer can that I'm holding. Is that a beer can, or do I zoom in and it's aluminum, or do I zoom in and it's an atom, or do right. I zoom in? <laughs> what am I looking? At? Or do I zoom out and it's a room? Or do I zoom out? And it's a house and a mm -hmm. country and a nation or in a planet in a solar system. We can just play this game forever. What perspective do you want to take? Because your hmm. whole neurological system, which would attempt to conceive of something, has to inevitably take a perspective. <laughs> and so when you're John Rawls and you think John Rawls can hold the original position in his political philosophy, upon which most of leftist thinking now is predicated, you don't get to have an original position. You don't get to have a view from nowhere. You don't get to look down on society without an identity, without a, a, a viewpoint, without without pre-held beliefs. All that you do in the attempt is remove a bunch of constraints to allow yourself to project your pre-held beliefs onto the empty canvas. So mm. all that you do it is a myth that you have an objective viewpoint. It is an impossible thing. Mm. And it's necessary that you don't have an objective viewpoint because you can't exist without limitation and therefore a perspective. You don't exist. <laughs> you are not a thing. Well, can, you can't be a, a unique individual without a unique perspective. It's even more fundamental than that. It's that what the fuck are, are you, Adams? Are you the universe? What are we looking at here? What is it that you are? We have to confine you to a space and time for you to be a thing. Right. <laughs> so you don't exist. It's... You do not exist without limitation and without a subject, subjective perspective from somewhere. It's you don't exist. so crazy. It reminds me of uh, Sam Harris's meditation app where he does the experiment of like, where is the thing that it, like the watcher watching from? Like yep. your consciousness? Because the experience I'm summarizing here and I really... You should all do this because it's freaky. But if you try to picture where your consciousness, like your perspective looking out of the world is, 
it feels like you're just a floating like camera in space, but yet notice you're, that you don't see your head. You have no vision of your head. You're just a floating orb that's above your shoulders. Right, so where is this <laughs> idea that you have a head coming from? It's coming from a abstract model of reality that you have of how you look that is imprinted on your perceptions. Yeah. It confines your perceptions after the fact. But if you return to consciousness as such, you are just a blob of feeling in in pers in uh, perception. Mm -hmm. I see my body. I don't actually feel the boundaries of my body. Yeah. What I feel is heat in some places or pressure in some places. And these are sensations. And they're ambiguous. Yeah. There's not a clear defined line. And, and so in some sense, what we are, I think, at the most concrete level is just conscious. Yeah. It's an interesting one. Like from a biological standpoint, like my brain was trying to figure out, like, why would we, why would our brains leave a blind spot in the feel, the sensation of our head, right? Like you maybe only feel your like head when you put your head on the pillow or lay down on something or maybe get punched in the pressure in my head. Yeah. Or that. My guess is that in history throughout many millions of years as of evolution is the odds of you seeing your face, your own face was rare maybe in water, but like mirrors and things like that are technology that we created. And it's even weirder now that we, you know, have technology like Zoom or different cameras that we can see our face in real time. And I think they've done some studies where people are drawn to look at themselves. If they have their camera on, they see the participant's face or their own face. They're more likely to look at themselves than that of the participants. I'm not sure. They just stay there forever looking down at the reflection. <laughs> Who is that thing? It's like the dogs. Beautiful. It's like the dogs that don't know it's them. <laughs> but I'm not sure what that the, the meaning of that is, but I'm sure there's some. It's a total fluke, right? It's a, You just need this head thing to be robust and protect your brain. And we don't need to put a bunch of nerves in it hmm. and forget it. And so you just end up as a fluke without having a large sensation of your head. But it was besides the point. It doesn't yeah. matter. But you could come to understand, I don't know how the hell we got here. I was trying to think of what it was that actually led us to this because we started with creativity. Yeah, I don't know either. We're talking about like fragmentation of community and consciousness from that because you got into Rawls. I know, and he pissed me off. I know. But we can wrap it up and bring it back <laughs> to something more concrete if we want to. Yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> if people want to go down the deep end. I mean, we're down the deep If they don't want to go down the deep end, then they shouldn't be listening not, to the podcast. They won't be listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. And yeah. This is why I love these, because I never know where it's going. <laughs> yeah. And so you can come to understand better what it was that was going on with our mythology and stuff is when the, the moment you take a limited pers perspective. And mm -hmm. in, in recognize that the most limited perspective of any human being is to just have a perspective, which is something like consciousness itself. Yeah. And that everything is, in fact, external to consciousness. So that includes internal and external sensation, right? Yeah. Everything is external to consciousness. It's not that here you are and everything outside of you is the world. That's not where the line is drawn. The, draw, the line is drawn between consciousness and everything out of it, which is your own body. Right. The things you identify as yourself and such and the world. That's why I don't believe in the like the whole free world doesn't exist. Because even if it doesn't exist, it still feels if it does. Because like our consciousness well, is, could, is elaborating. Maybe. Or we feel like agents in our elaboration. I, I think that the most interesting thing, the most interesting argument I've heard that I can manage against against the idea that there is no free will 
it comes from this idea of consciousness. It's okay, so you're conscious. If this conscious, and what we mean by free will is that I can make it conscious. Like I am aware, I make an intentional effort. And people like Sam Harris will say that, in fact, you can meditate in such a way that even the intention feels outside of consciousness and that this is detached from consciousness. And as a result, even that that's not proof of free will. It's like because the I that you would assume is making the decision, which is consciousness, seems not to be involved in the decision. Yeah. Fine. I think it's, but one immediately wonders, okay, if consciousness has no means of causally influencing the world, why the fuck is there consciousness? Yeah, why would it exist? Right, why does this exist? And why does it seem like it right. accrues some sort of benefit? is a camera dropped on, like some witness dropped onto a biological machine that operates entirely on its own. Mm -hmm. What the fuck am I doing there? I can just leave. And this thing could just do its own thing without me there. Yeah. Okay. So that's weird. But the other thing is that, and why I don't really buy this exactly, is pretty obvious, which is that I talk about my experience. Okay. Mm. Which means that there's a causal role in my experience with right, the machine is talking about the thing that supposedly has no causal role. Right. If you made a robot. Just like, would the machine be would the would the machine be talking about his experience if it had no experience? Right. No. If I was an engineer and I made a robot that started talking about his experiences, I'd be like, "Fucking turn this thing off." And maybe it's talking about nothing because it doesn't have actual experience. But I actually know that I have experience because I'm having experience right now. So I know that I'm talking about my experience. So if my experience has no influence whatsoever on the machine upon which it rests, then. What? Well, actually, that just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's even more interesting, too, because we find the works, like autobiographical works of past humans to be valuable. You know what I mean? Like Marcus Aurelius is like the first example that pops in my brain. Okay. Like we still find the words of a guy who is thousands of years old. And applicable to our applicable experience. to our experience. And so why is that the that case? That would work. Yeah, it, would, it shouldn't make sense if but we're just. Why does his experience? Why does his words? Let's say he didn't have consciousness. He was just a biological machine. Right. They were just talking nonsense. Why is it, in fact, that thing seems to map onto the experience of every individual, if what he was talking about was something he didn't have access to? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Because it would then it would make or it would make sense even further like some like the religious stories of any of the religions of the world that have survived for thousands of years. But okay, so that's the part about free will, and we're not going to solve that here. But you can start <laughs> to see the consciousness becomes the initial outpost in reality. Yeah, limitation is the most foundational thing. All right, nobody's going to deny that anything is limited. In fact, for anything anything to be, is to be limited. To be is to be limited, right? So we take that as foundational. You take consciousness as the first outpost. You recognize that consciousness is it is not it is separate from the body and from the world. Yeah. And as a result, that insofar as the body reacts to something in the world simultaneously, then it is very easy to fuse those things together. And so much of the world for the limited thing seems to be necessarily fused is that that it takes and in fact it's necessarily fused because because we because we're limited we have to make ourselves we have to elaborate ourselves into something more complex yeah that has the ability 
to differentiate between subject and object. And at some point, we didn't have that ability. And you see the conflation of inner world and outer world that produces a, a metaphorical way of being. Yeah. And it has to be a metaphorical way of being because what metaphor is that A is B. It's not simile where A is like B, is A is B. And the thing that the limited thing is looking at is a conflation between, or confusion, is a fusion between subject and object. Is my subjective experience and my objective experience of the world all simultaneously together because I haven't elaborated and developed the hardware by which I would differentiate the two. I can give you an example. You see an attractive woman. Is she attractive or are you attracted to her? Okay. What is doing the attracting? Where's the attraction? Is it in you or is it in her? These are confused. They are fused. It's a it's a weird one. I'm not, <laughs> it feels internal. If, if you see someone like just using a hypothetical, like attractive woman at the bar, your eyes just gravitate toward it. And right. It's, and but it, it's an internal experience. But it's, it's, it's a strange mix. Because yeah. You might say that the feeling of attraction isn't you and she might not feel attracted to you in some sense. But it's if she wasn't there, would you be attracted no, likely not. So what's going on? Where's this attraction <laughs> we're talking about? Right. It's, it's almost like the love at first sight kind of in story. It's a bizarre interplay between her and you, or, or at least your body and the world outside of your body. And so to consciousness, it's not clear where the line is drawn. So it's like, so the it's the external world impacting the internal world? Something? And, and vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> because your, per, your hardware draws lines across perceptual experience. So your hardware influences the world is from your perspective, from consciousness's perspective, but the world also influences you back. Yeah. And so there's a feedback. It's between spinning the between and oscillating between hmm. everything. The world comes into you and then comes out of you and back into you. And, and, now, yeah. and you witness the flow between both. And then that's why it's like you, that's why this stuff is gets so complex so quickly because it's so hard to untangle the specific interaction, right? Like we can't just say it's only A or B, right? Like it almost comes down to like nature versus nurture type arguments. Yeah. It's what's part of, what's the external, what's the internal? Right. <laughs> and I would say all of it's actually external. It's all external. The deal that we've drawn the line wrong, we think internal ends at, is at the body, but that's incorrect. It's that everything is external to consciousness. And ah. consciousness is the most fundamental piece of identity. And so you can understand, you can understand Jungian, what do you call participation mystique? Mm. You got this from a sociologist named Levi Bruhl. That's actually a hyphenated last name. I forget his first name. But the idea of participation mystique is this weird way in which people are, are connected to seemingly external objects to the point of identity. A oh, weird extreme version is totem, totemism, where you have a totem. It's an animal companion that it, that is you outside of the mm. world. Or you see this more obviously in that you wear clothes that express yeah. your identity. We just elaborated it further. Those clothes, as those clothes. So now it, it's like brand loyalty today. Yeah, this is a, an expression of your identity. The brand is an expression of your identity. Now I make a distinction between identify with and identify as, and that participation mm. mystique is the extreme version or, or, or on one end of a spectrum between identify as and with. 
and identify as is that is the confusion between the fusion between my subjective experience and the objective that would occur as a result of your limitation and your inability to or, or lack of hardware that would be sophisticated enough in order to differentiate between these two things. And so I am the animal. I am mm -hmm. the Horcrux is a good example in Harry Potter. Yep. I am the elk. I am, this is me. This is a part of who I am. And you might say, I am my body is a confusion that we will have now. Oh. I am attracted. So with the, am, this is a little bit of a probably tangent, but would the idea like that vein, brain in a vat theory or like uploading your consciousness into some sort of technology, would that break down in this framework because to me it sounds like you you need the physical world to have a perspective yeah because like you need a vehicle like you need a vehicle wasn't well but you could have a perspective in the software but if you it, it would this would be a tangent we would get pulled off yeah i'm just uh, my brain was going there i'm right. like it seems like it Th that I have an answer for how you could have this, but we, we can't get there yet. <laughs> this is a normal me. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other end, so there's participation mystique in the far left, and that that is identify as. Mm -hmm. On the far right is identify with. And that is identify with is predicated on a differentiation between yourself and the object. It's not that you are the object. It's that the object is, in fact, a separate thing from you, but it reflects back to you a part of your identity. Right. And so you say, I identify with that character in a story. All right. I identify with that person. I admire them. Right. I identify with perhaps these clothing or whatever, but it's a spectrum. It's, you can be caught in these things to different degrees. And I think that much of human history is the slow diff differentiation, the building of hardware in which yeah. we could differentiate between ourselves and the world. And thus we slowly move from identify as to identify with relationships with things. Yeah, it seems like two, it's almost like a elaboration of culture. Like or if you were to take like a modern metaphor, it's like software versions. If you look through it history, like all the things we've talked about through the last couple podcasts with the different elaborations of complex, I don't even know what you call it, like metaphysical theory of the ancient myths and how they talk about the different themes. It's as they elaborate over time, it's like you're getting deeper and deeper resolution to explain universal behaviors or you're getting a clearer picture you're getting yeah. here because they're elaborating it and in the act of elaborating it they're generating the hardware by which they would elaborate and differentiate between things yeah over time you get stories they become more and more sophisticated yes. and more and more high green high detail high whatever and so what you have is a version of batman in in our in, in memory that is very seems realistic seems grounded seems whatever but you have myths in the background that grounded even further uh, <laughs> way years and years further that seem bizarre and poetic and somehow strange and what the f nobody would actually act like that right but somehow it makes sense and it's because again they're caught in a metaphorical way of being where every their relationships are it's not literal it, it's confusing what we mean by literal i know <laughs> but, but this is me not being a philosopher slash psychologist so yeah, I'm so, not so using the right words what ends up happening is that so these is that mythologies are trying to get at something with very low resolution yeah. concepts and and what part of what you have to recognize is that at the beginning of evolution, or after this initial state of uh, introduction to the world, whatever this original being is, that uh, doesn't have the hardware we have now to differentiate, 
or the software to do or whatever, that this thing will make leaps and bounds by applying a general framework, right? You Because by definition, the general is applicable in a lot of places. Yeah. If you can knock off or master this particularly applicable, this particularly general domain, you will launch light years ahead. It's that from one to zero, or rather from zero to one, is a huge leap. Is a huge leap. Oh, yeah. Whereas a thousand to a thousand and one is okay. Yeah. Whatever. It's an incremental step. Now, at it that might point. be very difficult and really hard to do, in part because it's predicated on the leaps that came before it. But you get a lot of bang for your buck for, in the beginning. And so what we did, as far as I can tell, is we adapted to patterns. It's not that we adapted to the material world per se, that you had material objects that we had to take into account, like the coral snake and a king snake. Tell me the difference. I don't know. They're black, yellow, maybe white and red, and one of them's poisonous. I, other than that, I got nothing. I can't right. tell you which one's which, and most people can't. Both are bad. <laughs> and it, it's, it, their material differences are clear. They're a different organization of DNA, of the way their scales and the colors on the they're bounced off those scales and all these things. The, the, the material that constitutes that that reflection. So the material is different, but in most minds, those things are just Snake, dangerous. I'll figure out which one is the more dangerous one later. Because right now, not fucking relevant. Doesn't, it is it, not gonna, it does not matter for my survival which one is which. It matters that I get the fuck away. So in some sense, we adapt to a substrate, a material substrate independent pattern. It's that the matter doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, what matters is its relevance to you. Okay. And so in the beginning, we looked for rel the most relevant patterns to which we could adapt. We adapted to patterns, yeah. not to material reality. And so one of the pat so the patterns are or become archetypes. They are general low resolution concepts of the nature of reality that are functional adaptively. They they are evolutionary functional, right? Yeah. They will. They are survival relevant. They speak to the subconscious, right? Like we don't even think. Like they're so foundational, we don't even think about them anymore. And so your brain ends up being constructed like a tree. You have a mm -hmm. trunk that is broad and bulky and not differentiated, and then it slowly elaborates. And then you have big limbs that come off, and these are still broad and bulky. But they are differentiated, so you have multiple limbs, and then these turn into little branches and little branches, and it gets more and more elaborated and sophisticated and complex. But it's still, right, the, the you don't just have a tree branch. You have a tree. <laughs> right, you have to have the whole thing. there's a branch on the tree. And so you still have that primordial, ancient, metaphorical, broad, low-resolution way of thinking in your unconscious. And it frames your perspective hmm. that you necessarily have because you're limited and because you can't actually exist without a perspective or being limited. And it's interesting, too, because it seems like in some sense we've lost touch with the ancient parts of our brain, which is ironic. In some, We don't believe they exist because, right. <laughs> because we think that religion is the liquid in the cup. It's not the cup. It's the goddamn glass. And you'll never skate the, the, the glass 
is the trunk of the tree. The glass is the metaphorical underlying structure of your cognition that frames your entire perspective. So you dump out the glass and all that happens is it slowly gets filled and you think you're fucking rational, but you're not because there's a huge part of your brain that isn't trying to be rational. It just thinks about patterns. It doesn't have the hardware to be rational. And it's not like you lobotomized yourself when you stopped believing in God. And even if you did, you would just die, which is interesting. Hmm. And so... You still have it. You're still there, and all you're stuck with is you're still the pretty, ancient version right, of you. Shittier tasting Kool Aid. Congratulations. Now you just removed all the richness in the aging. Is Not it- that the <laughs> Kool Aid we were drinking can't spoil, but you see what I'm saying. If you want to know where the future's going, you have to look to the past. And I can explain why that's the case <laughs> because the, uh, reality is fractal. It's that it's it, in chaos theory they came across this problem because the moment you would zoom out, you went, uh oh. Like the world looks linear and predictable and like a machine right? in which nothing matters at the scientific level. But the science reduces. It takes things out of its context and looks at it abstractly in a very specific lab setting. And it appears like a linear relationship at that level of zoom. Right. You've zoomed in so close that that you have no choice but to see this. But the moment you zoom out, it stops being a line and starts being a spiral. It starts never when it's if the circle closed, if it was a line that came back to its original center or original position, then you could predict something. You could say, okay, in this amount of time or at this rate or whatever, it's going to come back to this place. But history doesn't do that. Clouds don't do that. The ecosystem doesn't do that. What it does is look like it's going to be a circle. And it comes back to the same position, but it never actually contacts itself. It becomes a Lorenz attractor where like there's all these representations of this in mathematics is that it's a pattern that exists. But it's only a macro pattern. It doesn't actually repeat, but somehow the pattern maintains itself. It's still the same pattern, but it's not a predictable pattern. And so you have a cloud, but no cloud is the same. So it never returns to itself. It never returns to the beginning. The same for like snowflakes too. Yeah, and snowflakes and anything else in nature. And your heartbeat, by the way, acts in this way. It doesn't actually. Oh, interesting. At certain points, it'll go blah, 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 and it'll like, and then we get back on cycle until uh, until you all fucked up. Again. That's funky. Right, your heart, your whole body does that because your body is an ecosystem, the same as the ecosystem is an ecosystem. Right. And it makes it entirely unpredictable. And in fact, when they applied chaos mathematics to heart arrhythmias, they had a lot of uh, benefits that came out interesting. of interesting research in this because they went, oh, they did the same thing for cities too. You think right, like, cities have a heartbeat? They called it um, <laughs> something. They're like non-linear mathematics or something. That's not surprising. Which is pretty funny. Yeah, because what is man- mathematics if it's not linear? <laughs> but apparently, chaos theory. Yeah, <laughs> and so nature is this bizarre series of patterns that never actually repeat itself. So we adapted to the pattern because if you adapted to a line instead of a instead of a spiral, you would just you, Walk off a cliff. You're no longer with your model work because yeah. the reality has changed as you were creating that model. And you go to apply it, uh-oh. So you just adapted the, again, you adapt to the patterns, your material reality as such, because reality is too complex and it's constantly changing. Your Heraclitus, who said that no man steps in the same river twice because he's not the same man and it isn't the same river. That's what it is. So you are stuck in this. And so you adapt to certain patterns, but because reality is this spiraling thing, you can return to uh, one level higher, but the same position, yeah. right? So you're standing directly over where you were standing on the floor before. You're not in the same place. This isn't predictable, 
but you have a sense of the position. And so if you can read these huge patterns across history, then you can make a prediction about what happens next because you're not looking at the minute details. You're not looking at the reduced scientific thing. You're looking at the massive, nonlinear, often narrative and imagistically represented patterns. And so characters like Camille Paglia who do this from the Stone Age onward across art and culture see that we'll say things like freedom is followed by sadomasochism. And what that means is that when human beings get the freedom and liberation that they wanted, they find that the influx of information is more than they can tolerate and hmm. they attempt to bind it. And this gets represented in the cracking down, the cracking of the whip on humanity again. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what's happening now, <laughs> in the, especially in the sexual domain where we mm. got sexual liberation and freedom. Now we find the freedom intolerable, and there's an influx uh, of sadomasochism. Why is there an influx of sadomasochism? Because it's an unconscious representation of the desire to be controlled, to have some amount of control, to reduce the amount of information that's coming in because you're overwhelmed. I was trying to think, I'm like, where was the last time big history moment of fragmentation or large upheaval, right? The collapse of the Roman Empire was the first thing that I thought of. Mm -hmm. And it's, oh, that's ironic. Pallia argues that that's what happened. To the, so what the Roman Empire did was it expanded itself. It had a bunch of stupid wars and it made everybody a citizen. And so the mm. idea of a Roman identity got expanded and democratized. But it, it went also, too fast. It dissolved the idea of a Roman identity. And so there's no, in some sense, there's no reason to keep the empire around anymore. And we're all Romans anyway. And say, fuck, it, no, we're so sophisticated. Look at us. We no longer believe in identity as a Roman. Everybody is a citizen. Look how progressive we are. And mm. then what ends up happening is that nothing, there is no Roman identity. Nothing matters. All the borders are dissolved and they become super decadent. And, and then, uh-oh, here come the Huns and the Vandals, people who have conviction and order. and They, they know who they are. Exactly, <laughs> they fucking are. And because you don't know who you are, they can knock you over in two seconds and bang, collapses the empire. Right? Because an a empire or a nation is predicated on a psychology. Right? Hmm. It's that you have to have the right mindset yeah. to, to maintain a nation. And when the mindset dissolves, the nation inevitably collapses after. It makes sense why the, in, in times of this, where it's chaotic and fragmented, why people crave strong leaders, because they become an anchor point to say, we are like that guy and or girl. strong man <laughs> arrives, uh, or it, it arrives in the culture at the moment where things are chaotic right? because people are crying out unconsciously or otherwise for order Yeah, because things are too chaotic. And that same thing happens again in this kind of sadomasochism, right? That's a yeah. version of the sadomasochism. It's interesting. And, and at the detail level, you'd say there's a real difference between a strong man showing up in a nation and becoming the new president right. and between sadomasochism in the bedroom. And you would be right because at the detail level, that's true. There is a difference. But at the broad societal level, they both belong to the same pattern. And we are when you go broad, you have to look at large pattern not small, reduced concept. Because abstracted, he's often abstracted out of his concept. Because you miss the lesson, right? The teachable moment is... You miss the point. Yeah. <laughs> you just miss the point. And, so, and you can do this with any sentence. You can do this with any sentence. I'll take that sentence as a sentence that we can ruin by taking it out of context. Okay, what do you mean by sentence? What is a sentence, right? Defining for me a sentence. <laughs> Let's zoom in so far that on that single word and that single issue, and we will get to a point where all you never actually 
a, you never actually complete a sentence. Every word has to be justified. Justified, just what is a sentence? What's, what's justifying? Like you just keep breaking what it. What is this? What is it? It almost sounds like when little kids keep asking you questions. Why is that? And why is that? But it's like the stupid version of that. Because it's not like they're trying to actually understand like something. We can reduce this all the way down to insanity and never arrive at anything ever. Hmm. I'm proposing the opposite. We zoom out. Now, you can zoom out so far that... You miss everything. All that it, it ceases to be predictive. It becomes just a description. The universe. Or okay, the planet. I've so got everything. <laughs> right. Reality. Done. Yay. Woohoo. So much to do. What does that tell me about what's going to happen or what I should do or anything right. about my life? Nothing. It tells you fucking nothing. It's just a Hey, it's almost like you have to set limits again. Right. And <laughs> I have to take a person. And with, which was the fact that this was a... That, that this sort of zooming out isn't predictive is just a description of reality was actually one of the one of the arguments that was or, or, or counterpoints or criticisms of, that was levied against chaos theory they said this isn't science it doesn't predict anything it's just a description and i think it was mandelbrot who said that said something like this is the most brilliant description of reality and you can see this fine you zoom out too far it's just a description you zoom in too closely and it's too specific. It's mania. You get nothing. or is, rather, it's just noise. You missed the it, point yeah. entirely. It's like when you zoom in on, on like this audio wave that we're recording here. You zoom in too far, it just sounds like gobbledygook. Right, we went on a date once with a chick, and we were hanging out. We walked through a park by Fox River, and we're just talking, getting to know each other. And then she invited me back to her apartment, or, or she's actually staying in a house. And we just kind of we're still talking, and we ate some food and hung out. And she started playing. She wanted to play Jenga, and she was playing Jenga very seriously and kicked my ass. And I was like, this is very strange. And I was like, should I care about this? Honestly, I think she was on the spectrum. But she got so fixated on this game and trying to win in the seriousness of the game that by the end of that night, I told her, it's not about the game. It's about you. I am here to understand you. I am on a date. These things are all means to understanding, Okay. Why are you fixating on the game? Right. On Jenga. Okay. Science is very helpful. And if you push it too far, if you reduce things too far, you're fixing fixating on Jenga and you're missing the point. Okay. Well, you're just looking at data points, basically. Like you're like, just Okay. I, I do X, right? It's like in this study, with these methods, under these conditions, at that time, in that country. In that lab, in that very room, at right that moment after lunch, which by the way matters because judges will will administer uh, worse or more or more harsh verdicts before lunch than after lunch. That's hilarious, right? Because the, <laughs> the time of fucking day, or at least the time after or before you've eaten, never make affects, a verdict on an empty stomach. The way in which you make judgments and make decisions. This level of detail. This thing is true. Okay. That tells me nothing. True specific. Scientists know this. One study says nothing. So met, uh, you look at one study and it's, okay, that's really cool, but we need to elaborate on this. And maybe you get a thousand studies and a, and a bunch of meta studies and look at all these things, compare them. And then slowly but surely, you start to paint the broad picture and you get broad enough that you get you can get a sense of the commonalities and the general pattern of things. And then, you, okay, now you can make some real conclusions about the nature of people in reality. You reduce too far, useless. You lose, yeah. That, you miss the point. But if you zoom out too far, you just get description. You can't predict anything. So you have to find a happy middle ground in which you can operate. And I 
in order to understand what happens next on a cultural level, you have to understand these broad patterns across cultures. And the, I think you need in order to understand that, you need to understand Eric Neumann's The Origins and History of Consciousness and Camille Paglia's Sexual Persona. And these are nearly impossible books, and I suggest you read them in that order. <laughs> because Paglia, at best, is almost manic to read. Really, and, and dominating that book dominates you into her worldview. It beat it really. It's that is hilarious. I've had this thought before about books, especially nonfiction books, is that you're not just reading words on a page; you're reading the thinking of another human being. And you're, you're thinking like them. You empathize with the author. Right. You walk a mile in their shoes. Yeah. You're doing, and you become them in the act. And so, it's a you're, and and Pallium makes you. Right, she, that's intense. She <laughs> dominating personality, if you've ever heard her speak, and especially in her writing. I'll have to listen. I, I think she's been on Peterson before, right? She's yeah, she has. I'll have to listen conversation to those. Yeah. Listen to her lectures. Lectures, okay. Especially the older school one. She's anyway. So she's sort of manic and domineering at best. And if you don't have the framework to understand her, she's schizophrenic because <laughs> so, she just moves so fast that you just don't understand. Just, what are these connections you're drawing all over the place? Mm. It sounds crazy. But if you understand the framework that she built on, because she was influenced by Eric Neumann's books, then you can get done. I mean, it's crazy how much Jung has influenced on. people. The, the people that are emerging until understanding Peterson might be the most accessible way to get into this. If you read Jordan Peterson, actually, Maps of Meaning is rough. I haven't gotten Maps of Meaning because I do want to get the audiobook for that one. But I the audiobook is much. I like his newest book. I thought this newest book was those are super really accessible, good. and he has in the latest one. The Twelve More Rules for Life. He has a whole book uh, or a chapter on the rebus. So he gets into this kind of, which is a alchemical symbol that's half man, half woman, mm. and it's like standing on a world and all this other stuff. And it was considered the magnum opus, like the great work is in some sense to become the rebus. Mm. So what does that mean? Balancing the the two right. that's energies it's, within it's, you. You're both masculine and feminine, mm. but you're not fused. You're not a hermaphrodite, which right. would be an earlier phase symbolically. It's not that you're not differentiated. Or rather, the half hermaphrodite is undifferentiated. It's an identify as or participation mystique reality that these parts of yourself that are all fused together. But the rebus is you've gone through differentiating these different parts of yourself, and then you've reconciled them. So now you are many things reconciled in unity, as opposed to a melted vat of confused shit. So mm -hmm. the rebus is 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 part. Is part and a, a, it's like putting your, it's putting yourself together, right? All your parts and what's the word? It's not like fragment. You start out fragmented and scattered and then you like, I forget the, there's a word for it in psychology. I can't remember what it well, is. Well, there, there's individuation is the process that, yeah. that Jung talks about with alchemy. And alchemy is a strange thing that happened before object and subject were differentiated. And as a result, you get a chemistry mixed with a psychology, a personal mm -hmm. development. So they're doing these, this kind of alchemical work that looks like chemistry, but it's also this idea of you're developing your developing your personality in the act of doing chemistry. Like it reminds me of forging a blade or something like that, where it's you don't see it, but then it's like over a lifetime. Going back to like autobiographical stuff, that's more like early 1900s people in that area, who were like writers back then. You've, you'll find it in their writing because they use like they had they thought very differently about writing than they do now where they would use writing as a tool to put themselves together. And it wasn't that they, they were putting something out simultaneously to the world, but they're also using it as a tool 
to make sense of themselves. And they would just do these, Mary Elliott, I think her name is, or I might be getting the name wrong. I'll find it. The, the book I'm referencing is called The Road to Character by David Brooks. And he basically cites all of these very influential people nowadays, but how they all started out as fragmented young people who didn't know their place in the world. Right. And then through their experiences in the world and through eventually their writings or writings of people that, or writings of other people that would write about their lives, you see this cohesive picture of warts and bruises and all. They put themselves together. They go from this fragmented person who some of them were very religious people, like women back then in the early 1900s were, had very strict rules about the way they could live their lives. And all of a sudden they have to go through this thing and leave religion out. And then all of a sudden they're like, I'm going to have to really put this in its own context. Or you like, you'll rebel at one point and then you'll come back to religion and be like, oh wait, I was doing this all wrong. And now I've found a better way to put it in its place. If that makes any sense. And that would be symbolically, if it's super traditional and institutional, then it's the killing of the father symbol. So it depends on where it is. If it's in the family or within the community. It's, it's whether it's institutionalized or not. Yeah. The culture is in nature. Right? Is, it, is it a religion of the heart or is it a religion of the tradition or some institution? And so you get this across. It's a mythological classic story or, or archetypal a pattern where what a person has to do in order to individuate to reach the state of the rebus to yep. have a unified self is that they have to first kill their impulses, kill their nature, right? Kill mother nature. That's why it's, it's the oh. maternal within themselves. Then they have to go and they have to kill the father. They have to kill culture. They have to kill tradition. The part that has control over that maybe built them for what's good of it. Um, the same as nature brought you into this world, the same as That's culture refines you in this world. You have to kill that. <laughs> and then you have the freedom to take the parts of both of those things that you wish to, having mastered them, and use them to generate a true individual identity. Yeah. Okay. So there, there is a part of this. This is <laughs> you become the rebus. You're both female nature, the body, and feeling and emotion and and. And everything that comes bottom up within you, yeah. impulse and all this, mastered. You have that as a part of you integrated. And you have part of the culture, the part that it was learned and passed down to you and encouraged and uh, enforced even in this ordering, disciplining part of the world. And you've taken those parts and you've incorporated that into you so that they have a good relationship with each other, so that they're unified, so that you can use them to master your hmm. world in that moment in time. It's almost, I don't know why... I I keep going to this like monolithic like visions of these things, <laughs> which is hilarious, but it, it feels like they're like two parts of the same tool. And it's almost like if you were an ancient warrior from some past culture, it would be like you have to make a sword and a shield. And it's like in the order in which you make those things is very important. Like you can't make the sword first, or maybe you do make the sword first because you have to kill that what is nature or like your impulses. And then you have to make the shield afterwards so that you can protect the things you find most valuable about your upbringing right. or something like that. I'm totally paraphrasing or pulling this off the cuff, but that's what it feels like just by your explanation of it. It's, it's, and you could, you could find people that fail or are trapped at one stage of development or another. And so you can find people that are super, super impulsive. They're like infants. They right. just hop around, they do a whole bunch of things. And all that they manage to do as far as maturing, it make more complex their justifications for their behavior. Yeah. And so they always have an explanation for why they did something. 
But the reality is the reason they did is because they felt like it. Yeah. It's pure bottom-up feeling. And the words that they say are just are just how they tell themselves that they're, in fact, in control. That's it. And so they're stuck at a great mother level. And you can find people who are stuck at a great father level who maybe have discipline over their impulses, but and maybe not. But what they are is possessed. They they are totally identified with their card, cardboard cutouts in their group. Okay. They spout the same words. So it's the fat bro. They fat might bros. have collapsed their ethic to their their into a politic. Mm -hmm. so they say nothing but what the ideology tells them to say, right? They are all tradition. They are all intellectual tradition to which they belong. Then they just spout, 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 spout. And one thing that they know, oh, this person is a Christian. This person is a Marxist. This person is a whatever. And you can predict everything they say. Mm. Because there's no individual. Their identity is subservient to a category. Right. Their impulse, their nature is under control, which isn't the case for the great mother type. Their, but their, their mind is not. It is not their own mind. And it's someone else's. Yeah. They aren't an individual because they belong to the pattern of the ideology. Ideology is the pattern to which they belong. And... They're not differentiated enough from that pattern to be considered one thing. They're still part of a collective, still part of a group. Yeah. They aren't, it isn't that they, that their body isn't a body separate from other bodies, how, which is how us materialists would think about whether or not you're an individual. So that particular body has sovereignty or whatever. Yeah. You're separate and you're an individual just because you're one body. But in this mythological ways, I don't care if you have a body. I don't care if that body is separate from other bodies. If your pattern of behavior is the same as everyone else's pattern of behavior, you aren't your own pattern. You belong to that pattern of behavior. You are not an individual. You are a collective. And so in that stage, you are just a, a mouthpiece for the great father. That's it. That's all that you are. It's almost like the zombie theory in some sense. It's a version of the zombie. Yeah. Zombies mean a lot of different things. Yeah. And, it, but they can, that you are just a mindless ideologue, but the real myth is that in the way to be a real person is to kill both. Yeah. Because you have to, the only way to be able to understand both aspects of your perspective is by coming into terms of both. And it, it's like a creative destruction, right? Like you have to face the demons, whatever that may be, because it's, you can talk about these things like nature and culture and whatnot but there's always good with the bad and the only way these things evolve is by confronting the good and the bad and everything and the only way we progress through time is by being honest by that it's like it's almost like what bruce lee said with his philosophy of his martial art is you take what's useful and discard what it isn't and everybody does that in their own life without even realizing it and you have to be willing to pay attention Pay close attention, right? Because you need attention to discern what's good and bad and what's useful and not useful. So I guess the question is, like, how do you create a filter like that? Like, attention is almost a filtering mechanism. Yeah. It is the means by which you're going to distribute everything. I, mean, I guess maybe that's where, like, the mentor figure right. comes it, in. It's part of why it, it has a very close relationship with consciousness. In fact, you can mean attention by consciousness. I can say, 
I'm conscious of something or yeah. in, in the same way that I could say there's in the philosophy, there's a, or around or philosophy of mind, which is the philosophy of consciousness. You get um, mental state consciousness, which is consciousness as such. The, it's experienced pure and it's separate from the contents of consciousness. Like I see the microphone in front of me, that is a content. Yeah. But I, the, I am experiencing that microphone. And so the experience is mental state consciousness. Yeah. But you also have a couple of other, what they call creature consciousness, which is I've been knocked unconscious. And that means, are you awake or not? Basically, How are you actually there? And, but that's not, not, obviously that's one separate thing from a mental state, but they're closely related because I have to be awake in order to be conscious, to have experience besides streaming, but you can get so knocked out that it's just... Pfft. Yeah. And, but there is also a couple, there's the awareness kind of consciousness. There's the conscious of, and they're all elaborations in some sense of the other. It's like, first you have to be turned on. You have to be creature conscious, not knocked out. Yeah. And then you can be conscious as such there. Like I'm having some experience here and then you can direct that consciousness as attention or awareness conscious of. So they're all very closely related, but what you have to do in your life is become all of these things yeah, and, and be conscious as much as conscious of as much in some sense as you can manage yeah. or is, or is functional becoming conscious of just how you're experiencing the world in any given moment, not thinking about it during your experience. Don't be modeling the experience as it's happening right. because then your attention is not on the experience. Mm -hmm. Your attention is on the mod. Right. It's on constructing a model. You're playing a game off to the side. You're not playing it, paying attention to what the fuck is actually going on. You're not you, present anymore. You are not present. You need to shut up and just be there. Be present. So that you can learn to be present, be better at it, practice presentness. And so that you can begin to discern between what works and what doesn't work, what's uh, good and what's bad. That's fascinating. That's why meditation is so helpful. Right. Because it's the attempt to practice being present. I'm reminded of a quote from uh, Ted Lasso. I know you haven't watched it yet, but he's a coach for a soccer team. And there's a scene, yeah. there's a scene where he, like one of the players makes a mistake and he's kind of like in his head and thinking about the mistake and he's not playing well anymore. And he's like, hey, what are, like, and this was a scene earlier, but he's like, remember the goldfish is what he told them. And then immediately the guy snaps out of it. And what he said before, he's, can you tell me what like the goldfish, the, the like reported goldfish have, you know, a memory of 10 seconds. So be like a goldfish. If you make a mistake, forget about it. Yeah. 10 seconds. And so it's like, it's a basically a reminder to be present. And I love that quote, right? Like you make a mistake, acknowledge it for 10 seconds, then forget about it. Right. And that, it's not <laughs> like that player forgot how to play soccer during that time. This is embodied. They've been, it's a part of their being at this point. It's that they're distracted by something that they can't control. Yep. <laughs> it's already happened. Stop thinking about Stop it. Stop replaying it. You'll have time to think about the mistake and to understand where you went wrong later. Yeah. First, you survive. <laughs> then you make. Then you figure out how you right. fucked up and got in that. After you finish the game, win it hopefully. <laughs> then you go back, and, and teams will do this. Like yeah, playing football in high school. 
after a game, you all sit down and you go over the tape and you look at what you did and what you did wrong. But you don't do that. If somebody dragged out a fucking projector during the game, <laughs> he started live playing the game as you were playing the game and trying to tell you what you're doing wrong. It wouldn't work. This would be a chaotic nightmare. Yeah. Stop doing that in your personal life. Stop doing that every time you're out and about in the world. Shut up. Shut the fuck up. Stop. Pay attention. Yeah. In front of you. Most of the time. Life is right there for you. It's really fascinating. Because, I don't know, maybe it's because of all the, like, the screens we have in our lives now, where it's your, there's more space, both figuratively and literally, between the experience you're having. Thankfully, we're not doing this over Zoom, so it feels very differently. Yeah. But it's... Also, because there's something intangible, right? Like we were talking about these mantle sets where it's like there's something subtle, but it's once you're at the perfect level of resolution, it makes sense. And it's almost like why does personal interaction with people physically make sense or have some sort of special thing to it? Because it's at the right level of resolution that you're able to resonate on. And the resonance is an important feature of experience because it tells you that it's relevant. If it feels like I need to be paying attention to something. Something here has caught me. Like the, when you sit up in your seat and you're like, wait, hold on. I need to, I need to right. focus here. <laughs> Sometimes it's obvious. Dang, she's good looking. Right. Sometimes it's obvious. Why? Yeah, those ones slap you. I know exactly what this is. And I know myself well enough to know what this is. Those are the easy ones though. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm not so deluded. Maybe you're a young teenager or something and, and you see this chick and you're like, oh my God. Uh, what if this is a sign and we're supposed to be together forever? As you get older, you come to recognize, no, no this is me. Uh, I'm just very attracted to her. <laughs> that, that's fine. I can be. And you're allowed to be. It, you can do that and you don't have to act on it if you don't want or you can. The fact of attraction doesn't mean anything other than what you then. It's an impetus for action. And if you choose not to act on it, then it doesn't have to mean anything. Yeah. And it won't mean anything by definition. It just means nothing. Fine. Okay. You're attracted. But no one will ever know if you don't act on it. But you should notice the resonance because there are other things that will happen that aren't so obvious. And something will grab your attention. And in the moment, you won't know why. Hmm. And again, you'll miss it if you try to make a model of it in the moment. You just need to act on it then. Okay, something here has resonated with me. I have no idea what this is. I, I have no explanation for why this is resonating. This is very strange. Hmm. Now you explore tentatively. And you reach out and okay, you like stick your foot out a little. Bit. Yes. Like, is this ice gonna? Break? Yeah, right. <laughs> or is this yeah. cold? <laughs> and you kind of inch your way into that experience because something there is up that you need to deal with, and you aren't. You won't know until it's already come and gone. You won't know what it is until you've already done it. But you need to pay attention because those moments happen way more often than you would think. But because you have expectations and a model of reality and a plan that you're sticking to in your head, that when divergences happen, you're so fixated on the model that you just ignore them. Because nothing is real besides this model that you're fixated on. Like, this is not how my life was planned to go. Stop it with your expectations. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah. They are good for some things. What do they call expectations? The the thieves of joy or something like that? Do they? Yeah. You know. There's this, Once you have expectations of a thing, once you achieve it, it's never actually... You, as sweet as a one are sort of necessary a model of reality is necessary and 
you might say that to have a model is to say what you expect from reality. Fine. It's the it's not that you can't you shouldn't have a model because that's all chaos. It's that you you can't confuse the model of reality for reality. Yeah. You need to pay attention. Be conscious of. But that's when one of the things that has me a little bit worried about this idea of the metaverse if it does come because it's almost like they want to create a digital model of reality. Yeah, I don't like it because it again it, it this is a tangent but reality with a model of reality. Right. And you can make a theme park of it because there's no the, the the amount of consequences in this digital space would be and that's Baudrillard's complaint. Baudrillard is make a copy of a copy of a copy and now all that we have are these totally ridiculous right simulations of reality these models of reality that don't seem to respond to reality at all yeah and all we've done is confuse ourselves about what's real and in fact we've got he he goes too far and he says that there's there is no reality there that you get to a place where it's not that the representation or the simulation hides reality it's that the simulation hides that there is no reality and he goes too far with this statement, in part because he he forgets again that you're taking a perspective here, and in that you're taking a perspective from within a body. It's okay. There's no reality. What about your? Experience I mean, we're still of the model, yeah, or of the simulation of reality. I mean, at the very least, we're specific organisms to a specific planet, to a specific solar system. They like, deny objective reality. <laughs> they forget the experience exists at all. It, it's really it becomes a, this psych. It's a throwing up of the hands and accepting this invasion of models of reality without an awareness that reality is right. In, it is you. It is conscious. Right. There is nothing more real than consciousness is in part or that we can say is real more than consciousness. Right. Because all of the things that we say that are real, empirically tested and otherwise, were discovered through consciousness, through experience. With the microscope finds nothing without the eye looking through it. Yeah, it's just a tool. So it is predicated on the consciousness that is looking through and making sense of everything. And so the idea that Baudrillard could say something like, oh, all we have now is models of reality without reality, is to miss the fact that you exist. But then who took the picture? It's like saying a photo, a photographer, a camera could take a photograph without the photographer. Yeah. And that's like, how does that work? <laughs> a rock falls on it and it hits. Right. But, but there's a causal <laughs> chain of events that produce the thing. Is the rock real? Oh, right. right. We're, we're, now we're going semantics. Right. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. It becomes an absurd thing. And it isn't that you can't get into this sort of hyper reality state that Baudrillard talks about where you're so inundated with models that it's hard to reach something genuine. I have a lot of sympathy for this. I think there's yeah. something very true about this. And that I think I, that people in general now have gotten <clears throat> to this place where they talk as if they're performing on Facebook to other people. Oh, yeah. And that all that everything ever is a representation of their living, but not with their life. It's, it's photos of them in a pool that they rented so that they could take a photo. Of yeah. And and it's okay. This is embarrassing. It's the highlight reel. <laughs> right. This isn't real. This isn't genuine. This is a, a form of a it's not even. It's not even a highlight reel. It's something else entirely. It's. Yeah. And you can opt out. Yeah. You can opt out. It's really fascinating. Just I think part of it just comes down to incentives of these platforms, right? Like 
when you incentivize the wrong things, it justifies behavior that ends up being shallow and inauthentic. Yeah. And, and, and I wonder to what degree the people in Silicon Valley would rather live in a fantasy world than a real one. Socially awkward, bizarre people. We talked about aptitudes never, of people, right? <laughs> never got along, maybe, never got along with their peers. And right. they were ostracized and strange and this, and they never, they always wanted to be outside of the social world. And now we're letting those people construct our reality for us. What do you think is going to happen? You think human connection is going to happen from people that don't want human connection? Right. You already know they've already done studies on like how coding bias gets informed in, in, into or put into code inadvertently without meaning to where they algorithms select for different things because of the, the coders themselves so set the parameters. The same way that rationality is predicated on irrational underlying mechanisms. So too is this sort of AI hyper rationality predicated right. on this underlying unconscious stuff. It, it, this isn't these aren't this isn't a chain that's been cut. Yeah, the, to to which bolts have been used or, or used to snap these chains. It, it's it's it, it the links go all the way back to our animal yeah. nature. And if you haven't made conscious, if you haven't been mastered your impulses, mastered your temperament, mastered yourself, then the idea that when you're going to end up with this level of power is something that we want yeah, is naive. Yeah. It is so naive. It's like, I mean, we tend typically thought, think or talk about algorithms, right? Or like artificial intelligence as these like arbiters of truth or monoliths that were almost like scripture, like ancient scripture. But we forget that who writes code and algorithms? People. Just like anybody else, they're just speaking a specific language, right? If one day or if in past times the priest would speak Sanskrit, now our priests who control these algorithms speak encoding languages. And, and, and <laughs> you know what? That is a feeling of overwhelm, being overwhelmed by too muchness of things and a desire to be less conscious of those things because it's overwhelming. And so what you do is you offload the consciousness onto something external to yourself. Yeah. And that can be an ideology, and that's what traps you at the great father level. Mm -hmm. So you offload the thought because you don't want to have to think for yourself onto some external structure, but that denies you your individuality. But hey, fuck it. Now you don't have to think anymore. Right. Or if you can sacrifice it all the way to impulse and feeling. Say my feelings are equally true and you just whatever you feel in the moment is as much as you can handle and you become more unconscious and this is being consumed by the great mother as opposed to being possessed by the great father which is the language that Neumann uses interesting and but you can do the same thing with artificial intelligence yeah right what you're trying to do is offload the thought onto something external to yourself because you can't handle it and now this is fucking hilarious that you've outlined all of this and so i said oh wait all of this coding stuff is getting even more relevant and seems to be getting more relevant. And so I've literally started tr like learning how to code and I I'm learning JavaScript and I'm planning to just learn as much about coding before Web3 turns on so that I'm uh, at least either ahead of the curve or not left behind yeah. because it's, here's a gray box, right? Like here's the unknown. And there's a few, like there's a small subsection of people that are selected to understand said unknown right now. Let's not leave it up to chance. So that's literally taking responsibility for the unknown. And so 
How do you confront the unknown? By understanding it. By trying to understand, right? To make yourself <laughs> capable. Of and I never, I didn't even connect that dot until as you were explaining it right there. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> and it's not like you can actually, it's not like you can actually offload the responsibility. It's as if, right? Because just because you want to believe that AI can solve all the problems and they're smarter than us and all these things doesn't mean that the AI aren't made by people who are limited and right. thus are limited by people. Right. And so the problems of people, especially those with uh, a pathological inability to, to converse or understand other human beings or, to, or yeah. without any desire to be in the social world, those faults, those failures are going to be played out in the code of yeah. the AI. And this is this. Is, I can give you a concrete example of this. Google, if you to this day, I learned this from Douglas Murray's book, Madness of Crowds. If you Google gay couple. You will get images of a gay couple. If you Google lesbian couple, you get images of lesbian couple. If you Google straight couple, you will get images sometimes of straight couples, but often you will get images of gay and lesbian couples. What? Okay. Why? That is so because weird. Because the ideology of Silicon Valley and the coders that are creating the AI systems that produce these images. Are they telling you what should be real? Right. Their ethics and ideology is being baked in to the code of the AI. AI are not supreme rational beings that will come to the right judgments. Yeah. Their rationality is predicated on the ideology of the coders. Man, see this don't get to offload the responsibility onto the AI because they it's somebody is responsible for the AI. This stuff <laughs> makes me so angry when I think about it because it's like if these people have missed the point like the foundational like philosophical doctrines of what became the internet and computing was started roughly by ARPANET, but the original director of ARPANET was JCR Licklider. This guy was a visionary. Like he's just really, he was a people person. We call him the Johnny Appleseed of the internet. He was given basically a, a checkbook to write and fund different research institutions to bring it to reality. And the government didn't know what they were funding at the time, <laughs> naturally. Yeah, and that sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> he wrote this super influential paper called The Man-Machine Symbiosis. And it was basically a philosophical mental exploration of what he envisioned computers would one day help humans do. And his fundamental position was that computers wouldn't be smarter than us. Computers were exactly what they, the name means, computers. They were data gathering and aggregation machines that allow humans to do the things they're really good at, which is not data gathering, yep. Yep. which is creative aggregation. You tell the computer. We're synthesizers of yes. information and we can act on it. You tell the computer, hey, get me all this data so that I can look at it and save myself time. Computers will be very good at reducing things down to the hyper-specific. Right. In the way that I described earlier. And they will miss the fucking point. So that's why, that's why I believe like we've lost the mark, like as engineers, broadly speaking, that because I was never exposed to this idea of man-machine symbiosis because one, it sounds crazy, but also too, like once you actually read the data on it or like the paper on it, it's really good. I love this topic. Like the book itself, it's called The Dream Machine. It's like an autobiography slash like tour de force on JCR's life, but also like the people that brought the computer to our existence. It's one of the most incredible and probably 
only 10 people really enjoy it because it's so hyper specific. But I would make, if I was ever teaching an introduction engineering class, I'd make all of my students fucking read it because it's so damn interesting and so influential and to all of our lives at this point that it's something we all need to read. And it's basically at the end of the day is it comes down to this fundamental belief about what this technology means for humanity, right? And I think we've lost sight of that. And it comes down to is what is all of this technology for? If it is a symbiosis thing that it's supposed to make our lives fundamentally better, then we need to start behaving in such a way that it allows it for do that rather than to be basically milking us for this, our attention. This, yeah, this is what scares me because if we're in a period of time in which no certainties can be had without great skepticism and uh, 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 the, uh, which means no values, no, no anything. No one can commit to a value structure for human Im improvement, progress, well-being that they can code into those AI. Right. There, there's no, in some sense, intellectual means available for engineers to do that. They don't have philosophers. They don't have right. people of real wisdom. They don't have the psychologists or other people right. that are because not just technologists. Them because wisdom is predicated on some amount of certainty about experience. Huh. All of this is, every amount of progress is met with a certain amount of skepticism because skept because progress is predicated on an aim and an aim is predicated on some form of certainty that you, right. you are certain that you want to go in this direction at the very least. Wow. And and so there there is no progress. There's it's a bower. You spin in a circle and you never go anywhere. Yeah. And it's a nihilistic, progressless way of being that exists. And we this is the milieu in which we're generating these AI. So of course they do nothing but what is something like just beneficial in the short term or whatever. Right. Because nobody's giving ad them revenue and engagement, all these superficial markers of success. And so what the question becomes: What's the higher aim for? That, that you could give to people who are working on AI. Right. And you get options like human flourishing and whatnot from right. um, the philosophy and some of the... What if you embed like positive psychology stuff? Right, but I think it's more that I think that what you should ask for is beauty. Mm. I think that you should ask for beauty and that beauty is something that AI can't make because AI are predicated on at least now, predicated right. on a, a linear, rational, reductionist thing. But beauty comes from the whole. It comes from the presentation, the the context, the gestalt, the constellation, the experience is where beauty is. But mm. we can imagine more beautiful things. Humans can imagine more beautiful things, more beautiful ways of living that our AI can help us generate. Yes. And so we can create the means by which we can have these upside down cathedrals floating in the air over reflective right. ponds <laughs> in, in a mountain. It's like it all is, those images so of surreal. heaven, right? <laughs> like the, these bizarre, surreal science fiction. Elysium, basically. Artwork. <laughs> if you go look on Instagram at the different sci-fi concept artists and the staggering, gorgeous depth filled images. Oh, yeah. And we look at that and the fact or we play video games that, that strike a chord in our soul because of how gorgeous the landscapes are and the technology that they've imagined. And we don't bother to try to make that real. That's the, what we're going to do. We're going right. to sit around and we're going to make ridiculous architecture 
that that has that doesn't push the boundaries. Mm-hmm. I, I want to see something. I want to be. I want to walk out in my daily life and be blown away. Yeah. And I want to shed tears every time I walk out <laughs> of my apartment. That's what I want from this life. Right. I want something so rich you can hardly believe it. I had a dream last night where I the plot doesn't matter, but the scenery does. That there was this uh, plaza and this plaza was filled with this sort of market but there was this whitish stone like with a sand tint to it mm. um there was constructing much of this plaza and it and it spanned down these big blocks all the way down across the way which dropped off into river and water and beauty and up there's these huge stone monuments with pillars and structures. Every building was a cathedral, right? Um, surrounding this opening, and a, a it's not called an Acropolis. It's called a palisade, I think. Where it's initially in Egypt, you have pillars, right? So you'd have a, a central opening and pillars that line the inside of that opening inside of a building. So you had to go through the building's opening in order to get to the opening in the center where there are statues and lush things and whatever, but there are these kind of pillars that line the whole thing. And the temple at Luxor in Egypt was the first time that got inverted where the, the pillars were outside and then that and, and lined the building and then you entered in the building through the pillar, pillar, and then that got caught up by the Greeks, and now the Greeks had the Acropolis. Oh, wow. That architecture got brought into Greece from Egypt. That's very interesting. But that same thing was present in this, this plaza. And along this wall off to my right as I'm looking at this thing, it's, I'm looking out at the plaza for with the markets to my back, and here's this, this stone and everything, and way off in the distance is water and kind of to my north, northeast from my perspective, these huge towering cathedral-like constructions of stone with gold over the top of the pillars and all of this. And then lining off to my right is a is stairs up to this lining of pillars in a corridor that leads, but is outside still, it leads down the way. And in the middle of the plaza, this huge blocks stacked of stone and on top of the stone is this sort of like that copper where it's turned green statue and on there's series of globes like five globes like earths and one stacked on top of the four other earths and it's waves are coming up over the earth it's they're bursting out and lining them almost like a halo or like a like a corona that comes off of Mm -hmm. the sun and you see the like like this fire flame that shoots off in this sort of spiral, but the, it's not constructed of fire. It's these Greek gods set up so that they look as if from a distance that they're this wave. But if you come in close enough, <laughs> you see a whole, there are a bunch of characters yeah, all bunch- stacked on top of each other, interacting in a way, bending back on these separate yeah. globes. And at top of the top globe is something of gold that I don't actually look at in the dream. I just see glittering. You just know it's there. <laughs> and it's okay. That memory is going to fade. I don't have the artistic ability to paint that. I can't paint it. I can't generate it in a 3D model. It's so intricate. I will never capture this. It's gone. I will lose that. But the idea is out there now. Okay? And it doesn't matter about the specifics. That would be interesting. I want to live in a world 
that is more beautiful than the things that exist when I'm not awake. <laughs> Don't incentivize me to go to sleep. Incentivize me to be more awake. That's what I want. That's what we can do. I think with the technology that we have with right. AI. I, I think that's the hope. If we're going to end all of this on a positive note, like the metaverse and all the theory stuff aside, even right now, we are closing in at this point that individuals have enough computing power at their home computers that they can start rendering very complex and even taking examples from real life and start taking different monuments creating scale accurate models of these things and now putting them together in a way such that now you can have basically museums in which people can walk in them metaphorically with some VR goggles or something like that, that they could experience these places like Egypt or something that they would never actually, like if you say if you live in some place that you're never just going to have the option to go to Egypt, maybe. Or even in this- The Assassin's Creed games. Or even in this world right now where travel's up in the air and squishy and you don't really know if you're, <laughs> things are going to close or not. But it's still a better world in which you could physically experience these things than you would, that it is at, at the right scale. Because seeing it on a photo, it can be awesome and it can be a composite and stuff like that. But seeing a tiny little, you know, Instagram photo on your screen is, it doesn't have the same visceral reaction as being like, holy shit, looking straight up at a thing. Even for me, I got to go to Colorado and see some mountains. It wasn't even anything like crazy. It was just like having the physical reaction of being able to look up and see earth that is many thousands of feet taller than you are. And that normally is maybe a skyscraper in Chicago is my like normal limit of high. But it's a very different reaction to seeing actual granite being forced up from the earth that is boulders that are the size of a Volkswagen, right? Like, it's a very different thing. And then it's a whole nother thing to see something like the pyramids. And I would love to go see them in person too, but if I could generate some sort of almost pseudo-mystical experience by generating hyper-realistic, not even hyper-realistic, just realistic models of these things true to their actual representation so that other people could be in awe and inspired by those things, and even going back to right, I but I don't want to be freed from terror, like the constrictions of space, by representing something real. I don't want to fix that problem with representation. I want to fix that problem with concrete, real technology that can get me there. That's what I don't want. More representations. I want more means by which we experience reality. So give me. Hyperloops. Give me flight through space that can take me to Cairo in two hours. Right. Give me something real. Like the like Don't be so me. audacious. Yeah. Like I, I remember where was it? There was a one of the quotes in in the Dream Machine that I, I referenced. I forget what technology or who it was, but I want to say it was one of the Xerox Park research facility that would later. Basically, it was the grandfather of Silicon Valley, basically. And ironically, it's a printing company that created this research facility that would create the computer <laughs> ironically quirk of history but one of the guys was given a challenge and he was like i have this idea and no one knew if it was going to work it's crazy and his boss basically said the way to create the future is to go live in it it's an audacious as fuck statement but basically he gave his license to his engineers and these, these fucking creative geniuses and say if you've got a crazy idea make it real literally just go do it 
and it's like why the fuck not? like, like i want like, give me something alive like here we are and we're dude it's fucking 2022 and we were talking about this before historically some people would write postcards like i found a german chocolate company that imagined what was two year 2000 was going to be like from like early 1800s some of it's fucking weird like they had like personal balloon travel where they had like a waistband with balloon straps, like a giant balloon. <laughs> and they all still wore top hats in the year 2000. That's what I would do. <laughs> they had, oh, they had a, a movable houses where you had train tracks. Your house was on a rail basically. And you just, you know, move down the rail and your, your house is always on with the move. But I like that our science fiction now has, been, has looked at this and they were very wrong. I'm just going to assume magic. <laughs> you're right it's like part of that kind of silly dare to dream bigger than you could ever expect because even if you miss the mark and you fall no well, you're going to miss what it is that's what i'm saying you first can, <laughs> right the, the first conception of what the future is going to be like and what you can do is entirely unconstrained by reality and ridiculous so you're inevitably gonna miss this but in the process of doing it, what you'll do is that your imagination will be refined by reality and you'll uh, converge on something that is both fantastic and amazing. Yeah. And it's real. You get to have the opportunity to be in concert with reality. Yeah. You get to dance with experience. You get to dance with nature and together you get to generate something new. And I think it, the, even more so, right now, in no other time in history, do more people have enough resources that they can actually do something without anybody saying, I don't think you should do that. Because now we would hope that we will get out of our own way and allow for genuinely creative and innovative people to build the future that thrills us. I'm not so convinced of this. I think that the more afraid we are of uncertainty creativity is a form of uncertainty it's that you are violating expectations to create something new original like genuine whatever but if we're so scared of certainties if we're so scared of holding a worldview if we're so scared of beauty and truth and goodness that we aren't willing to allow anything that violates our little certainties and these tiny little fiefdoms that we cling to, then we'll never progress into the future and we'll be usurped and overwhelmed by totalitarians that are willing to take on these technologies for the sake of the progress of their own societies. That's what will happen. We will be eclipsed by people who don't want something interesting and gorgeous for humanity. We will be eclipsed by people who want to use that technology for the sake of their own power. We have a responsibility to be creative. Yeah. We have a responsibility to be innovative. We have a responsibility to introduce these values in embodied form in our technology. And we aren't doing it because we're scared. I say screw the authoritarian and the old guard who, who want to clamp down. I mean, the West needs to remember where they came from. The entire America speaking mostly, but right. all of least <laughs> to the United States to remind us where the fuck we came from right? and pray to those Grecian gods that we can generate <laughs> something as interesting as the myths written about. We're This whole experiment that is America was is basically people daring to try that nothing was something that was never done before. They said, fuck kings, and they dared to fucking do it. 
And then we went westward and we said, fuck you guys, we're going to go west. And then we said, hey, we're going to make a fucking railroad. Okay. We made a fucking railroad without power tools. <laughs> and we tamed the fucking... <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to make the, the, the canal. The, the Panama Canal? Yeah, we're going to make the Panama Canal. And you connected oceans. You connected two oceans together because you dared to fucking goes, try. And of course, Teddy Roosevelt's statue is being removed from the New York Museum. Because what? Because there's a Native American and, and African American next to him. And who cares? It's nobody enjoys that statue because it puts those characters on a lower plane than him, right? In some physical, literally physical sense. They do it because of what Teddy, they appreciate the statue because of what Teddy Roosevelt represented, which was innovation and boldness. And the thing, it, it was yeah. the man that you're interested in. It's the man in, in the arena. The man represents <laughs> that, that matters. It, we're not, we, we don't hold on to these symbols because we're like, we're celebrating George Washington's slave ownership. Right. We, we appreciate George Washington for what he represented as a father of the nation. Just fact, think about it. The fact that he gave up power at the end of which the, the King of England at the time literally said, if George Washington steps down, he's the greatest man that's ever lived. And he stepped down. It's, that's what he celebrated for. Understand these things in context. And even still, it's we've like forgotten that we have the Statue of Liberty too. This literally woman who represents My the friend. values of this country. The, the the progeny of Athena is in front of uh, <laughs> is in is marks the gate to our nation. Right. <laughs> you think we don't have, have an honor for the feminine in this? It's the, would you, find me a taller person in the United States. And here's the thing. It's like, can you imagine, regardless of any historical hiccups around any of these things that we just mentioned, sure, there's always going to be shitty things. Fine. We can do that till kingdom come. But we still fucking did it, is the thing. We did it and people paid for it with blood, sweat, and tears and had a dream and they made it fucking real. And that's what we need to do. And sure, we need to do it in such a way that the least amount of people get hurt and we don't do it, do the same things wrong again. But again, like progress is both destructive and necessary. Yeah. Because you can't make progress without destroying the old to make room for the new. And it's, it's a marriage between progress and conservation. Yes. It's that, that, Ian McGilchrist talks about novelty and newness and in his book, Master's Emissary, and it's actually talking about the relationships between the relationship between the hemispheres of the brain and newness, or rather I should start with novelty. Novelty is a shocking of oneself into a belief of originality. Mm. Never have I seen this before. Wow. Whoa. What the fuck was that? It's those horrible trash, garbage, deplorable, obnoxious. Liberty Mutual commercial <laughs> where the a hot dog salesman on a pier in New York goes, oh, no, I'm not a hot dog salesman. I'm selling wet teddy bears, wet teddy bears. And he pulls it out with tongs from his little hot dog cart. And you go and puts it in a little, like, hot dog, like cardboard tray. And you go, well, I've certainly never seen that before. But that's not original. <laughs> That's not creative. And what does that's that have to do with interesting. Liberty Mutual selling you insurance? <laughs> Never have I had a insurance company sell me its product with a hot dog salesman who actually sells wet teddy bears. You're right. You violated my expectations. Congratulations. And you know what? 
it's fucking boring. It's stupid. I'm going to be honest. It's an insult <laughs> to my intelligence. Right. And, and, the fact that, and the fact that you're going to make a fucking stupid commercial like that just shows how totally out of touch you are with anything remotely approximating creativity whatsoever. I, I hate those fucking <laughs> commercials. And it's not even that uncommon. But and it, it, I think it started with Old Spice. But but the opposite is newness. And what newness is originality through an appreciation of the past. And that it's a looking back. And it's not an attempt to shock you or to create something totally novel. It's an attempt to answer the questions of the generation before you. What were the issues that arose in the time before I entered the game? Yeah. How can I answer those? How can I create a response that progresses us forward? And the consequence of that is genuine originality, genuine artistic expression. It's real creativity. And that's what we, I want more of that. I want more of that. I want more originality. I want something that, that conserves the past and appreciates it, recognizes its flaws and where it went wrong, but tries to generate a response to those flaws, a response to the questions of the right. era, and to progress us forward as a result. Dare we say a symbiosis with what? Between <laughs> being conservative and being progressive. Right. Like, it's so crazy to me that it's like we spent two hours almost <laughs> talking about this complex, hyper-complex thing about, I wasn't expecting this, but somehow pulling us out of this pseudo-dark age, or at least we're on the precipice of a dark age. <laughs> I think that we're on the precipice of, it, it, I think is a second renaissance. You think so? Yeah, if we don't kill ourselves. Right, if, if we don't. either this whole goddamn thing implodes, or we begin a second renaissance. And this is because we pushed the Apollonian way of thinking as far as it can go before it just collapses mm -hmm. is that we've pushed ourselves to this atomized linear reductionist hyper ration, but also without depth, without wisdom. Fascinated meaning. by psychedelics at this point. I think so. I think that's part of it is that the psychedelics gained in popularity and interest because it's, it responds directly to the problems of post-modernity, which is nihilistic and sees everything as a model and fails to see experience in that model. Yeah. And I think that in fact, the kind of feminist impulse to in, to impose femininity on the world is actually an unconscious attempt to, to respond to the masculine Apollonian tendency to reduce and to be linear. Yeah. So there's actually a, a, a desire for the feminine in this world and the feminists conflate the feminine with female. And so they think we should put females everywhere, but they're mistaking the female for the feminine. That what we need is a shift towards a holistic, the feminine archetypal right. perspective. Again, dare we say integration? Another yeah. word for symbiosis. Right. That, that, <laughs> that emerged in the in how in its symbology and its kind of grandiosity. Both, interestingly, according to Milk, uh, separately they came to this conclusion. McGilchrist was looking at periods of time in which he thought the right hemisphere was dominant, and Pallia was looking at times in which she thought Dionysian oh, wow. way of thinking was dominant. That's fascinating. They both thought Hollywood. They both thought Romanticism. They both thought the Renaissance. So they looked at it from different angles and saw the same thing. Right, and without any conversation between the two. Wow. Separately they came to this conclusion. And I think that that the imposing of feminine 
our femaleness onto the culture is an unconscious attempt by some part of the culture to express the fact that what we need is the feminine, though they don't understand what that means and they don't recognize. Right. It. It's, Sounds like a tethering effect is what we need. It's, if we're floating away from yeah, they from Earth. With, they, don't actually, <laughs> they know intuitively something is wrong. They're misattributing what the solution is. Right. And they're arriving at that solution because, <laughs> well, because they're rationality is constrained by their unconscious and i i think we're we're it's it's not just that it's that we've pushed we've pushed the apollonian linear reductionist way of thinking to right. its conclusion guys like jonathan paggio who are, are orthodox carvers but also very peculiar thinkers say that that this is the death of materialism. That was where I was going to go. It's like materialism seems like we've pushed it as far as we can go and it's... Right. We've gone out and we've organized as much as we can. And to organize any more is to become pathological. It's time to go out and to get more things before we have to organize those things again later in the future. It's time for exploration. It's a cycle it repeats itself. It's time to go out and to take things on and to generate, yeah. to find beauty, to find the whole, to find context. In it's, which we can we need, place the individual. We need new explorers, and i.e. explorers are creative people, right? The people who dare to to dream big and fail a whole bunch. Space is not the final frontier. It It is a frontier. Let's go. Let us find. Pick your frontier. That's what I say. Pick your frontier. You can go within yourself <laughs> in an introvert. I mean, if you want to do it, you can pick your frontier in film. You can pick your frontier in art. You can pick your frontier. And that's what's so cool is that right? everyone has their own frontier. Everybody is a... There's a circle drawn around them, and within that circle is the things that they understand, and at the edge of that circle is the things they don't, and that they have their own frontier that they can explore. Push yourself into the unknown and go find an adventure. Make sense of it, and then back tell us what you found. <laughs> right. And then come back and tell us what, right. I've, uh, I like that. It's <laughs> so dumb. We talked about a fuck ton in this one. Uh, go to the show notes, people. <laughs> yeah. This one's going to be a doozy. But as always, fun times with Joe. Yay. He's been exploring deeply as always. <laughs> so until next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the podcast. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. And I really just want to make this podcast the best podcast you listen to. Meaning if there's anything that you really enjoyed or any feedback for us, I would love for you to reach out on the social medias. You can find Feeding Curiosity across LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram in the usual places just by searching Feeding Curiosity. You can also send us an email or a message through the website. You can also support the work that we're doing here, including the podcast and all other content that we produce at Feeding Curiosity by either going to anchor.fm slash feedingcuriosity slash support or you can head over to the website and hit the support button and support us directly there as well. By supporting the podcast, you effectively keep us from having to deal with sponsorship and keeping the relationship that me and you, the listener, have as honest and open as possible. As for me, I take the idea of selling products and or sponsoring products very, very serious. Honestly, I just want to provide access to information to as many people as possible with as little of a barrier of entry as possible. At the very least, if you want to do anything to support the podcast, leave a review on the platform of choosing to subscribe, like, rate it, 
all of that. It helps out a ton. Again, thank you all for listening. And I hope you join in on the next episode.